You're about to hear my conversation with our CEO, Barry McInerney. Uh, we talked to Barry just before his retirement coming July 1st of this year. I asked him to reflect upon his career at McKenzie and more broadly. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to have Barry McInerney with me. Barry, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. We've uh, invited you back for our 100th episode of the podcast, uh, and uh, what I'd like to chat with you about today is your pending retirement and a bit of a reflection on your time at McKenzie. Um, so you've been at the helm uh, for uh, just over six years, I believe, uh, at McKenzie. You've certainly uh, overseen a lot of uh, business development, a lot of change to the organization. I want to start by talking about maybe the most obvious change, uh, that everybody's six years older now. And when we think about the Canadian wealth uh, segment that we serve, uh, that has meaningful implications for boomers who are now probably in retirement or, or nearing retirement, and millennials who are now entering their peak earnings uh, years. Barry, what does that mean for business, and how did you think about that during your time at McKenzie? Thanks, Matt. Well, first of all, it's a real honor to be here for your 100th recording. So I, I feel very, I feel very privileged. So, um, and of course, asking question about de demographics is dangerous because I'm an actuary, as you know, and so <laughs> I'll try to keep my answer short. But I can guarantee you, it's going to be longer than you like <laughs> because it's a very, it's a very important topic, and we know that demographics arguably uh, can be the most impactful force on any business, particularly on wealth and asset management, actually. And, sure. and you alluded to that already in that, you know, we're living in an unprecedented time for both asset management and wealth businesses, because as, employer, as employers, we now have literally four or five demographic cohorts that are employees of the business. Never had that before. And then we have to, to your point, um, reflect the different very particular and different needs of each of these demographic cohorts in our business model. Whereas when this, this these businesses started up, you know, 1980s and so or into the 90s, it was really the baby boomers drove it. Right. You know, one of the reasons why this whole business is where it is today because of them. They have fairly homogeneous needs, not, you know, not, not perfectly homogeneous, but fairly homogeneous. But then you put into your point, Gen X, millennials, Gen Zs, men and women, you know, geographic differences. There's a whole host now of um, differing needs that we all need to meet and want to meet, of course, to, right. to have a sustainable growth business. So, for instance, um, I am barely, I'm a very young, vibrant baby boomer, but I am a baby boomer, <laughs> made it by one year, being born in 1963. And even the baby boomers are quite different, I would say, today than they were six years ago, particularly 16 years ago, sure. in that, um, you know, again, we used to have baby boomers and, and demographic cohorts start to deaccumulate around the same time. Well, that's not happening. We've got a lot of baby boomers working longer. They might be working. They might need to work longer to accumulate more wealth to meet right. their financial needs. Or they might be working longer in a different job because a lot of them are not, quote unquote, retiring traditionally. They're saying, OK, let me let me finish one gig and I'm going to go on to something else. 
And, you know, obviously their expenses aren't as high. The mortgage hopefully is paid off with the house and the kids are through college and on their way. And therefore, they're not decumulating yet. Even though they've quote unquote retired, right. they are either have enough income not to start to touch the decumulation of their of the retirement assets and or they're supplementing their income for 5, 10, 15 more years with other things that they're doing. So that that is a, a, something that is different. So we can't necessarily say, okay, here's accumulation stage, here's decumulation stage, because that's going to vary even within the baby boomers and, and you know, their needs through their quote unquote retirement um, uh, period in terms of even their risk tolerance is going to vary tremendously. Because for instance, those baby boomers that have been fortunate enough to accumulate some wealth, they might be wanting that wealth to grow through retirement sure. because they want it for philanthropy or they want to bequeath it to the next generation. So that that in itself uh, offers some, not complications, opportunities, obviously, your businesses, if they meet those increasingly uh, different needs in one demographic cohort. But now, of course, you're layering on the X's and you mentioned the millennials. Millennials are starting to accumulate wealth and in their prime earnings years. And um, they're younger, different risk tolerance, different time horizon. Then we have to meet those needs. And then we've all mentioned the Gen Z or Gen Z sure. demographic uh, grouping that they themselves are, which I like actually, we're, we McKenzie are pro-advice, but the Gen Zs are coming into the ecosystem early. A lot of them are doing it through technology, you know, through robo-advisor, right. through trading platforms. And I think that's a great thing. I mean, get them in there early, start the journey. Ultimately, they might, uh, we would think they would need an advisor later on as life gets more complicated and their financial needs become more complicated. Or they might be more of a hybrid model going forward where they're kind of using an opportunistic bucket through technology and trading and and uh, robo. But then they have a, a portion of their assets, their core holdings that they ultimately defer to an advisor. So it's it's really actually quite fascinating. Yeah. It's a wonderful op- opening question, Matt. Thank you <laughs> for an actuary. And um, it's something that that businesses have to really keep an eye, keen eye on because it, it has changed even in the six years since sure. I took over McKenzie. Then, of course, obviously, we might get into uh, diversity, equity, inclusion later on. But, you know, women as investors, obviously women now control over half the financial wealth. Right. And um, so, again, they might have some different needs depending on on their uh, where they are in, in their family situation or work situation or what have you. That also has to be you have to be very mindful of. So I would say um, it is changing quickly. It has changed since my quick little six years here. Uh, but I would ask, I would advise everyone to watch, keep watching it, monitoring it and being adaptive because those demographic cohorts are all very unique mm. and and they are becoming increasingly more impactful and powerful beyond the baby boomers, right. reflecting the fact that baby boomers obviously still have the majority of the financial wealth because you know the millennials will catch up pretty quick and the Gen Zs are starting the journey. But it's really encouraging, again, as I've said, that they have started the journey on average much earlier than I think any of us start that, that savings retirement journey, which is a good thing overall. Right. That's great. Uh, Barry, maybe a related question. You mentioned uh, when you looked at McKenzie, you have four or five generations now working alongside each other. Um, McKenzie being an asset manager is entirely the, the what we do is we don't produce widgets. Everything is is based on uh, human uh, intellect and, and, uh, and capability. What are you doing for talent uh, and, and to ensure that, number one, you're meeting the employee expectation uh, from the firm? And, and how has that changed over your career at McKenzie? 
Well, again, um, great question. And it, it is changing very, very quickly. I mean, I've always been uh, a real student of culture and I've been fortunate enough to be in the industry over 30 years and been running investment businesses for 25 years and um, made um, some good decisions along the way and made some not so good decisions that I've learned from, right? Sure. And, um, you know, I have learned over time that the CEOs and senior leaders and all leaders in an organization, you know, we got to get the strategy right. We got to know where the puck is moving. We got to have the mousetraps, the brand, <clears throat> the products, the performance, everything to be able to meet those changing needs um, of our clientele as they do change over time. But once you get that right, and, and that strategy obviously in itself has to be fluid and has to be adaptive, then the culture takes over of a firm. And every company, every competitor, they're smart people. They sure. see the flows. They see you know, where the industry is changing. But to execute on that strategy is what differentiates success and non-success, and that takes culture. And um, you know, hate to use the proverbial quote of "culture eats strategy for breakfast." Right. Uh, uh, I think it was Peter. Um, yeah, director. It was director. Thank you, director. Very good, Matt. Thank you. You're so you're so well read and learned. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you need to focus on that culture. And uh, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. First of all. Um, you're right. What, what are we looking for in, in current and future employees? Well, uh, obviously, we want them to obviously be passionate and work hard. And, and I always say head down and head up, head down in that. Yeah, get your job done. And, but head up to, to be aware of the environments. And, and I always say in organization, work well horizontally, thinking or, orthogonally. Always connecting the dots because we we as as humans are prone to working in silos sure. um, and 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 not really working well horizontally. And so leaders such as myself and others have to work really hard every day to ensure that we're we're working cohesively each of the divisions in a horizontal orthogonal manner. So that's important. Um, and you know we we want employees more modern thinking to be their authentic selves. Hmm. Because if you believe, which we believe deeply, and I believe deeply, that if you have a group of folks with diversity, back, diverse backgrounds and diversity of thought, then you put them together and they're going to produce better results. Right. To do that, to maximize that, to optimize that, you need to need everybody to operate and work authentically, be themselves, right? And and that brings out that, that diversity. Obviously, we want to create um, an inclusive environment for everyone to do their best work. It sounds easy. It's not because, you know, you have to work on that and listen and understand what their needs are. Again, they're quite various, various needs of, of different groups and employees. So, you know, be their authentic self and, and work hard. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough last six months or so, since I announced my retirement to be, be asked to speak to a number of Youngsters, I call them under 30. How's that? Mm -hmm. uh, and or even graduating students from university. And, um, you know, they you always hear this 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 term follow, you know, follow your passion. And I have a little variation on that. And, and again, I'm not the first one to say it again. Nothing nothing replaces hard work and and um, all that good stuff to propel your career going forward. But uh, find what you're good at. And so hopefully an employer like McKenzie and others can allow uh, 
individuals come into the company and start to explore different areas, different divisions, even though we're, for instance, just do asset management, to your point, there's marketing, there's portfolio management, sure. there's systems, technology, there's product development, there's selling, there's all different roles within any company. And so we try to, and, and I think the employees want that, to be able to try different things, particularly early in their career, to see what they're good at. And I think once you're good at something, you find that, then that becomes your passion. And you hone your skills as the Malcolm Gladwell, 20,000 hours of repetition. And then you become confident in doing that and, and you do your best work. And so a whole hodgepodge of things, Matt, and there's much more that I'm, I'm not an expert on to, to create that inclusive culture, to allow individuals to do their best work. Um, and I think they're looking for that. I think they're also one more thing, as we know, what they're looking for, joining a company to make, make an impact, make an impact on the business that we each of us runs. And um, every job I've always said is integrally important and very important to the success of a company. Every job, every division sure. is important. Um, but also, of course, we're all more embracing more stakeholder capitalism and ensuring that all the stakeholders' needs are met. Obviously, shareholders, if you're publicly traded, to your to your board of directors, to obviously first you know first and foremost your clients and your employees, but also society. And so uh, we've worked very hard, as you know, Matt. That uh, if someone always asks me what's the proudest. The proudest thing about McKenzie to me is the charitable foundation yeah. that a lot of companies have. We have a McKenzie. It's employee run. Everyone contributes to it. And we focus on giving to grassroots charitable organizations across Canada focused on uh, disadvantaged uh, children and women at risk. And that is important to employees. And I think increasingly so. So a whole host of things to say, um, you know, we we want to continue to be sensitive to creating a culture which is, by definition, I believe, the the key ingredient for success, and creating that culture in an increasingly diverse employee uh, group by demographic cohorts or whatever however you want to find diversity. Sure. And and so we have to be even fluid and adaptive in doing that, but but focus on that culture, focus on leadership, focus on communication, and be relentless with it. And when you think you've already communicated, communicate more. Right. <laughs> because because employees want to hear what they want to hear that that what is the vision where are we heading and how is my job and my contribution contributing to the success of that mission again that mission being more broad uh, beyond just corporate but societal impact that's great Barry and um, maybe I'll I'll ask the question directly now I mean clearly diversity equity inclusion very important to you you've referenced it in the last two answers I can say working under you for the last six years you've referenced it many many times and in that over communication uh, sort of brings through a little bit because we're, we're always hearing from you um, I'm curious specifically uh, on on what actions you've taken on the diversity equity and inclusion to to um, hammer that particularly and also uh, what approach you've taken at both uh, the executive level as well as the more junior level uh, for for the positions coming in the organization? Well, this this has been, you know, you start thinking about it as you get later in your career. And now I'm at the uh, last two weeks of my career, Matt, of the impact you want to make. And so um, I would say I must be a slow learner because and I must have had my head too far down, not up. But probably before McKenzie, maybe five years before McKenzie, I had this epiphany that others already had years ago to say our asset management industry, uh, I'm talking about the D, the, the, the diversity aspect. Sure. And we get into other aspects of diversity, obviously, in a moment, because they're all important. 
But you look at our industry, we have 80% of CFAs are over, over 80% of CFAs are men, nearly 90% of the assets managed globally in our $100 trillion AUM industry is managed by men. Over 80% of advisors, financial advisors are men. Over 80% of wholesalers are men. What is going on here? <laughs> you know, now obviously there's there's been some systemic barriers, uh, behaviors to create that. And again, it's like the, the industry has been very successful for years. It's just that how can we make it even better? And, and diversity makes, as I mentioned before, makes it even better. Yeah. And so when I arrived at McKenzie, I said, I'm going to lean in on this one. I have a, you know, a father of three daughters and of now three granddaughters and, um, you know, uh, a 91-year-old mother that's such a wonderful um, hero of all of us, all eight of us, our, our kids. I'm number seven. And my wife, Rose, that you've met many times who, with her business, Womanscape, has sure. also been a proud proponent, as she should be, of, of women. How can I make a difference? And, and it was really important to me to start that journey, knowing it was going to be a journey and I, I cannot complete that journey. But um, so the first thing I did after, my, after a couple of months of selling in, I had a meeting with all the senior women at McKenzie. It's supposed to be an hour, it's three hours. And I said, listen, this is important to me and, and I want to make this right. And I want to be very open to all of you. I, I think this is makes good business sense as a CEO. I think we've got greater diversity, a, a greater balance between women and men working together. We're going to actually be competitively that much stronger. Sure. Okay. So, and now my job as CEO is to make us more competitively stronger. So yes, it's good for society. It's good for everything else. Makes us feel good, but it's good business. Okay. And so, um, and I asked them what we need to do and I got some really good feedback on what to do. And I also gathered them because I wanted to launch a signal to the industry that this was important. And we launched our Women Leadership uh, Fund. Right. It was like four, over four years ago now, maybe five years ago. And um, to um, just start the signal to say, okay, we're going to start leaning in on this one, not just within McKenzie, but I want to also do it externally and try to be an industry leader. Because it's not just a McKenzie issue, it's an industry, industry issue, right? So so we did that and you know, we started to um, not just sponsor uh, male Olympic athletes, but female as well, having a nice balance. And um, and then we, uh, you know, tried our best. And I think we did a good job. I, I have my my operating or executive committee. I have five additional women leading very important uh, businesses within McKenzie. Right. Uh, they're there because they deserve it, not because of their gender. And, and so we were just thoughtful enough to try to cast that net out wider when looking for talent to fill a new position to try to, again, get through the blind spots we all have and get through um, the barriers of the industry and the asset management, at least, of, of getting uh, senior women into McKenzie uh, and focusing on the talent we currently had. So that's been a good good progress. Um, so that's some, some good work and others we did top down to to start the journey and we're making good progress with a lot of work ahead of us. And then bottom up, uh, you know, how can we help out with going to the universities and even earlier, maybe even the high schools, and we start, we're still focused on universities to educate men and women on asset management. It's not a particularly well-known industry. I mean, sure. investment banking, uh, that's, that's the, the sexy attractiveness of investment banking. Somehow they don't really know what asset management is. And so get, Get them more familiar with the industry. It's a good industry. You can have a long career. Um, it's um, you can you know balance your your work life. Um, sure. It's well pay, it's well paying and provide for your families. Um, and so and also, I think and I think hopefully we all share this. We do some altruistically good work at 
in asset management. We're actually trying hard to improve the financial journey and retirement journey of our clients. And the majority of our clients at McKinsey are Canadian investors across this great country. So we did that. Um, the CFA, I'm a CFA and a lot of us are CFAs. Um, my good friend, Marg Franklin, who's the first female CEO of the CFA Institute, love Marg and known her for 20 plus years. You know, she really started to talk to us, talk to the men and the women. We, we both, the men have to really lean in to help as well, not just the women, right? Right. And so, you know, she's done a remarkable job in her only what, three or four year tenure of getting the word out there of this great profession and what it means to be a CFA. I believe, don't quote me that, for instance, there's three levels of examinations you take for the CFA. I believe the first level now has equal representation from men and women. That's wow. it's an incredible paradigm shift from 10 years ago. Wow. So we're, we're working hard. We're trying our best. It's good business, good for society, and um, got a lot of work ahead of us. And I know Luke Gould, who's taking over for me as CEO, McKenzie, shares the same passion, same vision. Another father of three daughters this is important to him. And um, I'm really excited by... Um, I'm excited by the progress we've made in six years, and I'm equally excited, more excited of that progress continuing for years to come. So uh, thank you for that question. That's great, Barry. Um, why, don't we, why don't we shift focus a little bit? And I think that uh, any business leader in the past six years, the largest single event must be the onset of COVID um, and, uh, and figuring out how to conduct business in that unique environment and do so in record speed. Uh, so we're we're sort of on the the backside of COVID uh, in North America, at least. Uh, different different jurisdictions are taking different approaches to it. Um, but how big of a shift of the business was it uh, when when you when you took a look at it? What did you think that you we got right as an organization? And upon reflection, what would you change? It was it it was obviously the biggest event any of us will ever experience, and not just our careers, but our lifetime, right? And you know, like a lot of businesses, you you test your business continuity plans and you sure. you you decouple the business for an hour, maybe a day, right? See if you can run this with your backup systems. And then this was business continuity plan 24-7 for two years. Right. Just crazy time. And I'm really proud of I wouldn't change a lot of things I'll speak to going forward, but you know, I gotta give credit to Cynthia Curry, the chief HR officer of IGM Financial, and all the chief HR officers out there. Goodness me, did they uh, they take the burden, sure. relentless daily burden for two years of helping us keep our employees safe, first and foremost, and their families, and then functioning to run this business. And so we were early to get everyone home safe and sound their families, proud of that. And that was Cynthia's doing and Mike Dibden's chief operating officer, iGym Financial and his team. We got everyone home real quick. And, uh, and lo and behold, we were able to run this business, both the asset management and our, our sister wealth businesses at iGym Financial, virtually. Mm-hmm. Didn't know we could. And we were very blessed to be able to do, very fortunate. So many businesses could not, and so many businesses were hurt. Right. Um, and and still recovering from that. And and we were not. So we got everyone home. What I was really proud also is the first couple of weeks, you know, I, I asked this, but others suggested it too. It wasn't just my idea. You know, again, our largest business at McKenzie is, is a retail business in Canada, working with 30,000 plus advisors across Canada. And so we went out to the advisors and we're not going to sell you anything. 
how are you doing? And what can we do to help you? Because they had a transition over to virtual. Sure. And the work, the, the the sky was falling. I mean, obviously the the, the uh, central banks and and governments uh, interjected very quickly in in a huge fashion to support the the floor of the free fall that was occurring. If we all remember in March of twenty February March of twenty twenty, but so we reached out to them and 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 asked them and uh, and I think they're very thankful of that. And and then we got into an education mode. I think we I, I you know I asked to this and the team responded so well, let's start to educate our clients. What is going on around here? Put this in context of what's historical context, you know, financial crises, 08, 09 versus here. What, what are the similarities and differences? What should they do to hold their clients' hands uh, and put this all in historical context? And so we we did an inordinate amount of virtual you know, videos and, and webcasts and everything we could to get out there and educate. So I'm really proud of, of what we did there. And then um, I'm proud of us taking our time getting our employees back. Right. You know, we we're fortunate in Canada that you know the banks are so big and powerful and 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 so resourced that the the big six banks in Canada they can do pilot projects and we kind of take their lead. Sure. And seeing you know she come back now and or not uh, maybe only one business one division, and we didn't um, we we weren't tempted and we've thought about it. But we weren't tempted to open too soon because we didn't want to open and close and open and close because everyone's psyche, all the employees' psyche, and everybody around the world, they're they're tentative. You know, they've been you know they've been <laughs> this has been an unprecedented time that everyone's experienced. So we want them to come back to work and feel good about that work. And so we've taken our time to reopen offices. We have offices around the world, Mackenzie, principally across Canada. And we're not even formally open yet. We, we right. said, come on in, wade in, get comfortable. Um, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of folks obviously uh, have children looking after and or elderly parents, for instance, looking after. Take your time with all this. And so we think actually probably post-Labor Day is when we can more formally launch our hybrid model. And the hybrid model, you know, I have talked about this, Matt. You're, you're a big reader. I think we all felt that the hybrid working model was where we were all trending to 15, 20 years from now. Sure. And then it came to us in 24 hours. Right. So the challenge we have is that we don't have the 15, 20 years of learnings, of academic studies, of experiential studies, of how you do hybrid effectively. Hmm. And leading off the first question you had, and we have these three or four or five demographic cohorts all have different needs. You know, the younger employees, they want to come back and dress up and start their career and and and, and get the learnings you, you have sitting side by side of your of your teammates and colleagues. And perhaps those that are more established in your career really enjoy working at home and balancing the office and 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 um, working at, at home. Then we've got large urban centers that are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, Toronto, obviously one of the biggest, <laughs> fastest growing urban centers in the world. And unfortunately, you know, folks, not unfortunately, I guess, but it's reality, they have to live further and further away from the city to afford their first home. Right. So their commutes are getting longer and longer. So the hybrid can really work for them. So on and on and on of uh, trying to figure out what's the hybrid model by demographic cohort, by division, by company, by geography, by country. And that's going to take time. So I guess... Um, my suggestion would be as I retire, and I think I'm not saying anything particularly prescient here, is take our, take your time with it. Be patient and, and don't pressure employees. Let them get comfortable with, 
with public transit, comfortable with what the hybrid model is going to be for them, given right. their particular family situation. And this could take easily two years. It's not like we can just say, hey, it's good. Hey, a post-Labor Day, you know, September 7th. Here we go. No, 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 no. No, we got we got. And, and of course, we have the luxury of the fact that we were able to run the business. Right. Those that were able to run the business virtually successfully. That's a luxury we have as well. So um, I hope that makes sense. The only final comment I'd like to make, because I, I mentioned and emphasize, as you know, every time I can. And I did the prior question on culture. Right. How do you how do you. How do you retain that culture in a hybrid environment? How do you actually you want to build and, and grow your culture? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think that that's, um, I think we all have to be cognizant of it and the importance of culture and be focused on it and um, the communication and responding to the needs of employees over the next couple of years at least. If you if a company gets that right, and we really, you know, we think that we will get this right, uh, we have wonderful leaders at, at McKenzie then we can retain and keep the culture, which is our secret sauce and even grow up. But that's not easy. I think we're all feeling good that we're coming back out of the pandemic and, sure. and coming back to work and whatever that is for hybrid. Um, but there's, in, in, in fact, we always said, getting everyone home when COVID hit was clinically speaking a lot easier then get everyone back to the office. Right, sure. We know that. There's so many complicated questions that we're going to have to uh, ask and have answers for. So I'll leave it at that, Matt. That's great. Again, great question by Matt. And I hope that helped a little bit. But that's a separate, that's a completely separate podcast, I think, uh, on just that hybrid environment, working oh, well, environments. We'll have you back in 15 years once the research comes out and, and we'll, we'll have the conclusive <laughs> evidence at that point in time. Perfect. <laughs> uh, one thing that COVID uh, didn't do was uh, slow you down at all. Uh, you made a number of acquisitions during COVID. In fact, over your career, you've, you've made a lot of acquisitions. Um, I'm curious when you're when you're looking to uh, find a, an acqu an acquisition target, um, what gaps are you trying to look for, and and did that ideal target change over the six years that uh, you were leading the business? Oh, very much so. Um, I've I've run other businesses where I've I have uh, participated in, in a number of acquisitions. Uh, they're tricky. I always say they're tricky in the asset management industry. I'm sure they're tricky in any industry, but. Sure. We, you know, getting back to that culture, you got to be careful with with uh, bringing companies in, putting companies together. Um, so when I started, as I normally do, set up a blueprint. Uh, you know, we're we're again fortunate that we're part of a a well resourced iGem Financial um, company, and our ultimate parent, Power Financial, which is a large company, well resourced, long term vision, and one that's very comfortable with with acquisitions right. and understanding the value add and uh, how to do them. So because I, I was part of joining that ecosystem, I immediately leaned into the, okay, well, what would we like to do if the opportunity arose for us to acquire? And, and as always, um, it's fluid. The order might present itself, not in what you think it should. Sure. Uh, you have to constantly have discussions and you're dating companies all the time. And um, first and foremost, looking for, um, you know, investment capabilities that we don't have that we think that could improve a portfolio uh, of for our clients. Um, you know, I'll get back to China in a second. Perhaps you enter a, a, a geographic market like a China that could give you significant growth potential for years to come. And the scale play 
is a challenging one. So scale is important for asset management because obviously size, the, you don't have to be the biggest, but it's, scale is important. And it actually ultimately benefits benefits your clients too, if, if you're larger from your operations, trading, et cetera. So all that aside, we did 10 in um, six years. And I joke sometimes in my goodbye speeches that uh, I did work 10 years, actually, but I just <laughs> I, I fit into six years right. because uh, thanking everybody the last few months that that were part of those transactions. We know that that is normally everyone's night job and weekend job. Right. So and I think we did a pretty good job. And I'll give you a few examples. So on the scale side, scale can work, by the way, a scale play. And they're challenging. Right. But they work. Uh, if they're a familial scale acquisition. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you quote unquote acquisition. I'll give you examples. So, uh, you know, early days, uh, well, middle of my six years, we, um, uh, our sister company, IG Investment Management, their asset management company, we merged into McKenzie and um, Candle Life's similar. The GLC was was merged financially into, um, into McKenzie because Power had the foresight to say, why don't we create a larger, more scaled uh, sure. Center of excellence for asset management within McKenzie. And so when you do that, and it worked very well because, again, all the parties were uh, feeling good about it, which that's really a critical <laughs> ingredient for success when all the, all the, all the parties are, are, um, are feeling good about it. And so what then, and then, so that's that tripled us in size. And, and that's important for us competitively. What happens, therefore, is IG, for instance, and, and Candle Life and IPC and all of our, but those principally are, are by far our largest, I call them sisters and cousins, companies. They're our clients now. We have to deliver for them. We're managing significant assets for them. We're getting paid for that. Right. But if we do it well, um, then that, that's made us more skilled. And we're actually that much more competitive, competitive externally. And then as we continue to strive for preeminence externally, that makes them feel more comfortable, our sister and cousin companies they makes them feel more comfortable to use us more right side by side the third party managers obviously that sure. they have to use for prospective clients so those were really brilliant and we're very fortunate enough china i i gotta tell you what a gift from power and the demaray family who have been in china over 40 years know the landscape and doing business there for a long long time and so uh through two transactions one is still pending you know mckenzie will have a 28 percent ownership stake in china asset management corp which represents the largest single foreign investment in a chinese asset management company pretty cool for little old mckenzie but that's because of being part of the igm power ecosystem the only reason we got that opportunity our competitors would kill to have to have that that stake which is purposefully minority by the way a minority stake because we feel that domestic players in China will be more advantaged in their success going forward. Obviously, our large, large much larger competitors are going into China and building their own plant, and, and I wish them all, all the best. But we feel pretty good about, you know, being um, not just obviously this investment in China AMC, but really partners with them. And by the way, the size and the, and the way that they operate, it's very similar to McKenzie. We feel like kindred spirits between the two companies, which really makes the the um, partnership that much more fruitful. So, so uh, anyone can do the math on on the future growth of China, be it their economy, their capital markets, the retirement industry, asset management. It's right. it's exponential, and so we're very, very, very happy to have that. And then you know we try our best to um, get ahead of trends, and and you never get it right. Sometimes you're early, sometimes you're late, but. Yeah. We, we really felt that uh, private markets alternatives were going to be, which, which have already grown to 
depending on how you measure them, anywhere from ten to trillion dollars, ten to twenty trillion dollars globally. But but at, up until a few years ago, almost at the exclusive domain of large institutional investors and ultra high net worth. Right. How do we get these in the hands of the of the individual investor? The democratization of private markets, and uh, which I would say might be the uh, there's going to be two. I'll I'll speak with the second. Might be the top two trend globally of our industry paradigm shift for the next. 50 years sure. to get uh, infrastructure and private equity and private credit and real estate and, and direct into the hands of the private investors, individual investors rather. And so we uh, obviously the North Leaf uh, transaction and partnership, of course, any transaction is first and foremost a partnership was just critical for us to have those capabilities <clears throat> that we can now start to that journey of helping our advisors through a lot of education to see how can these private market alternative investments fit into an overall retail investor portfolio. And um, so, so, so pleased to have the opportunity uh, with Northleaf. And then the um, trend number two is sustainability. Um, and we saw it and I saw it running global businesses for a better part of my, my career and, and particularly how prominent it was that trend in Europe Right. And it just hadn't come to Canada or U.S. yet to the retail side. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was, again, very prominent, for instance, with the Canadian public pension plans who are so preeminent globally in everything to do, private, privates, as well as the sustainability. I'm not sure, Matt, we'll have to uh, read on this years from now if COVID maybe it was an accelerant to sustainable investing ESG coming to the retail investor in Canada, but it came and it came fast. Yes. And we were ready for it. We 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 made a, a partnership and a transaction with uh, with Greenship, which is, I think, one of the first and leading in, uh, environmental thematic investors in Canada. And gosh, we, we brought that to our trusted advisor clientele across Canada and start to educate them on your clients are going to start asking for this. They want to start to invest more environmentally friendly. Um, and, um, and it just exploded on us and uh, we launched a mutual fund. It's, it's over $2 billion now, our green chip global environmental mutual fund, our seventh largest mutual fund in the over 50 year history of McKinsey already. And, um, but more importantly, we're able to meet, meet that need. And, and then we brought in Better World last year. Uh, so um, Greenship is led by John Cook, 15 plus year founder and CEO of Greenship. And he's, he's just a remarkable man and his partner, uh, Greg. And then um, Andrew Simpson runs uh, Better World, 15 years plus experience in ESG, kind of uh, core ESG investing. And that was, so we met that. And so we just keep on looking and, um, you know, again, we have a list and we talk to folks and every one you make, you, the transaction is successful. There's probably four or five that you look at that sure. you decide to back away from. This is not easy. And, um, you know, and one more shout out for our wonderful quant team in Boston. We brought in, gosh, about four years ago. Yeah. And just, again, we're, we're really known. Mackenzie still is a, obviously a retail powerhouse in Canada, but we're trying to be more thoughtful institutionally, uh, not just in Canada, but U.S. and Europe and in Asia through, via principally China. And Arup Data is the leader there, and he brought his team over four years ago, and they're institutionally renowned. And, and that really helped us to kind of get more uh, of, a, of a foothold in the institutional world. And they're, again, a just a remarkable team. And, and it just shows you that you've got a team working together. We're really, as you know, McKenzie embracing boutique models. We believe smaller teams 
working together, rubbing shoulders every day, virtually otherwise, <laughs> in one aspect of the of the capital markets with a repetitive, consistent, successful process and do that every day for years and years and years, that adds up to success. And that's what uh, Rup Dad and his team have done out of Boston. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's, it's been a whirlwind tour. I, I really enjoyed it. I loved it, every minute of it. I'm so glad that uh, they found a good home with us and that first and foremost, that culture. And I'm so glad that that uh, you know we're able to provide even, we, we think even better products and solutions for our clients now and going forward. That's great, Barry. Um, maybe we'll conclude with one question that I'm sure you're getting a lot le uh, lately, which is all about legacy. Uh, what would you expect or what would you desire your legacy to be both within McKenzie and then maybe m more broadly? Oh, goodness. You know, I, I, you know, I joined McKenzie's, you know, six years ago. And, and uh, at some point, you know, people start, I don't know, they're asking that question six years ago. I said, boy, what, that's a little presumptuous. <laughs> <laughs> when are you retiring for him to say, but, but, but I never thought of it. And your first reaction is, oh gosh, I, I, you know, like a lot of us, we don't like that spotlight being cast on us. And sure. what does legacy mean? You know, I, well, you know, want to first and foremost focus on being the best father I can be and the best husband, best son, best grandfather. Now that's really important to me and doing good work with, um, you know, paying it forward. And, and my, my wife Rose and I have been involved with so many different charitable organizations, and 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 some large, which we've done, but mostly in in and I found out with the McKenzie Charitable Foundation, mostly in the spirit of smaller grassroots organizations right. that just need a little bit of a little bit of help. And it's not just writing the checks, you know. <clears throat> Obviously, we've we've been time constrained. Now we won't be, so we want to um, roll up our sleeves and, and devote some time to those activities and. That'd be uh, a nice part of legacy now and for hopefully for many years to come. Um, at work, it's a, you know, it's a tough one because uh, I do mean this, and this is probably a motherhood statement, but, you know, did I, did I make Mackenzie a little better over the six years? I think, I think it's in a better position today than it was six years ago. I don't know how you want to define it. I think just from a pure business commercial perspective, I think we're, I think we're better positioned going forward. You know, again, we did the transactions. We, we, we um, have more to offer and um, more scale and and all that good stuff. Those ingredients to be successful business wise. But um, I, I I think I'll leave it at this. I I, I hope that I help to progress the culture. Hmm. And back to that culture, Matt. You know, I keep sure. saying that that it's a more diverse culture than when I started. Um, I think it's a it's a group that really feel like they're making a difference. Um, to the business, to society. Uh, we're so proudly Canadian. I got to tell you, you know, I'm proud Canadian. I'm American as well, but I'm you know, born in Canada. And, and it was nice to come back to run Mackenzie, get to be reacquainted with this, this great country after 16 years in the U.S. Out of right. running businesses out of New York and Chicago. And um, it was just wonderful, the, the collegial spirit of the industry. It's difficult sometimes working in New York, Chicago, particularly New York, by the way, but getting your arms around the industry, even sure. your company. Uh, but in Canada, I was able to fairly successfully get my arms around the company and the industry. And more importantly, just to work with the team to say, hey, listen, how can we just continue to progress this culture? And I think I think we did. And um, that's the most enduring thing uh, of success of a company. If you can, you know, getting back to the D and the E and the I, uh, you know, even six years ago, I don't think we used that that uh, terminology. I don't think we did uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think we, even before the D 
ENI moniker, I think we all worked hard at all three of the D and ENI, but but I think that we have a more formal framework to push that along. And um, getting back to Cynthia Curry as chief HR officer, you know, I'm an HR hack. I'm, that's not what I do. I sure. mean, I I'm, I'm an investment guy, right? You know, and and uh, can and can talk a good talk once in a while, and hopefully set a strategy that works. But but and then try to start this D night journey. But then when Cynthia arrived, she helped us to systematize it. That makes sense to put a framework around it because you got to work on it and you got to have metrics and you've got to measure it. Uh, you can't manage what you can't measure. You know, I'm using all these old terms, eh, Matt? But but so I think that um, I'll leave it at that. I, I I I really focused on it to try to progress the culture because from there, um, it, everything is just a byproduct of your culture. And I'll leave it that hopefully I did that in some small way. And if I did, then then my my job um, was well done. I was successful and independent of acquisitions and all those accolades. Right. It's the is to progress that culture. So thank thank you for that, Matt. Well, Barry, thank you uh, for spending all the time with us. Uh, congratulations on uh, your retirement. Uh, what is undoubtedly a very successful career. Uh, I hope that you have uh, a very long and uh, and healthy retirement uh, and that you get your hands as dirty as you'd like them uh, throughout it. So uh, thanks again, Barry. I appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.